The message around COVID vaccines has been the same. Get the first shot you can. But when that message is muddled by a national advisory, questions come up on what should be an automatic decision. And those questions could put everyone at risk. I'm Adam Toy. And I'm Dave McIver. And this is Why. For the first few months of the vaccine rollout, as shots were going into the arms of the most vulnerable, public health advice had been the same. And then the National Advisory Committee on Immunization, or NACI, put out some clarifying comments that, well, confused matters about which vaccine is, quote, preferable. But that didn't stop the Prime Minister and his wife from getting their jab. Looking forward to When it was their turn to get the jab, the Prime Minister and his wife got doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine. They joined 1.7 million Canadians who've had at least one dose of AstraZeneca. On a personal level, I am extremely pleased that I got the AstraZeneca vaccine uh, a number of weeks ago. Like the Trudeau's, Edmonton mom, Shauna Pilgrim, has also received a first dose of AstraZeneca. My sister works in public health and she has been overrun this whole time. So I thought, okay, I'm going to do my part to lessen the load for someone like her. But with the National Advisory Committee on Immunization repeating their recommendation that Pfizer and Moderna, the two mRNA vaccines, are preferred over AstraZeneca, well, Pilgrim is wondering what to make of that. To hear that, I'm thinking, well, is AstraZeneca bad now? Like, should I have waited? So it was just very confusing to hear that today. The message from Canada's chief public health officer, don't be confused. That was the right decision. The AstraZeneca vaccine uh, has really saved lives and that the vaccine has done what it was designed to do. Now, millions more Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are flooding into the country, and so the situation in specific regions may influence advice from local officials. I still encourage everybody to receive the vaccine that is available to you first, and I can say that my family members uh, received the AstraZeneca vaccine. All our vaccines are good vaccines. The reality is that the mRNA vaccines are better vaccines. But the bottom line from the PM... The most uh, important thing is to get vaccinated uh, with the first vaccine offered to you. Uh, It is how we get through this. Every vaccine for use in Canada has been judged safe and effective by Health Canada. So what happened? Timothy Caulfield is the Canada Research Chair in Health Law and Policy and joins us now. Thanks so much for your time, Timothy. Uh, Thanks for having me on. So... uh, just wondering what your reaction was to the interview with uh, NACAI chair, uh, Dr. Carolyn Quach, uh, talking about uh, the AstraZeneca versus mRNA uh, shots. And I guess I would characterize her as, as equivocating between the, the use of the different types of shots. Um, I, found the, I found the NACI document frustrating in general. Look, I, I know they're in a very tough situation. They're trying to do the best they can with the data as it is emerging. And they're trying to represent that data as faithfully as they can. Uh, The problem is that this is also very much a science communication story, right? So you have that side of the equation, right? That they're trying to represent, interpret and, and represent the science in a way that policymakers can use. But on the other side, and increasingly so, this is becoming 
a science communication story. And it's that part of the equation that I'm frustrated with because, you know, it really was not clear for the Canadian public. Uh, it really did make it sound like there were there was this, this very clear hierarchy of, of vaccines. Uh, they, I didn't think they did a very good job contextualizing the risk. And I also think they downplayed, not intentionally, I don't think there's any malevolent goals here, I think they're, I'll put it this way, it was unfortunate they didn't emphasize the benefits of the vaccines to the, to the general public to the, uh, uh, enough. So um, that, those are some, just some of my concerns. I think there's equity concerns uh, here. Um, there's, there's concerns about the impact this has on people that have already received the AstraZeneca. Yeah, it, it has not been an ideal situation. To layer on top of that confusing health science communication is the fact that NACI is different from the Public Health Agency of Canada, is different from the Provincial Health Authority, is different in from some provinces' regional health authorities. Really, really good point. Uh, adding to this communication challenge is the, is the reality that uh, everyone's saying something different. <laughs> and if you're someone in the public, that becomes really frustrating. Uh, look, people are 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 focusing on these vaccines, right? There's this hyper scrutiny that's happening. So it's almost like people overinterpret uh, everything that they they hear. And I totally get that. You know, I do it myself. And this is the uh, area that I, I work in. Uh, so we have to be absolutely certain how we're going to talk about these things in the general public, especially when it's coming from an expert body like NASI. I I mean, to, to add to the mix, uh, we've got news media reporting on uh, VIT cases and deaths. That's uh, cases of, of blood clotting following one or more of these vaccines and death. I mean, that, that's, that's something that the news media does is report on, on deaths, especially if they're novel like this. Um, I'm, I'm wondering if how that adds to the mix and if you think that all of the focus on, uh, from news media on some of these clotting instances could have driven some of the vaccine hesitancy we're seeing in Canada. Yeah, I think that's a very reasonable speculation and completely understand, number one, completely understand the desire of the news media to report on these events. I think it's appropriate for them to do that. Uh, but we also know from, from a good body of research that, that those kinds of stories can have an incredible influence on public perception. There's this really interesting research that talks about the power of, of an anecdote, uh, especially if that anecdote is negative and scary, especially if that anecdote is relevant to you personally, that you know relates, you can relate to that anecdote. So yes, uh, these stories of these uh, adverse events absolutely fall in that category. So you have that anecdote versus on the other hand, millions of points of data, right? About the safety, about the efficacy, about the rarity of these adverse events. But research tells us that that powerful anecdote can overwhelm all those data points. It can overwhelm our scientific thinking. And that's exactly what's happening right now. That's exactly what I wanted to ask you next is, is the difference between statistics and, and, and or statistical and anecdotal evidence. Um, wondering if you can get into a bit further or in a bit more depth of why anecdotal evidence seems to override statistics, because uh, I mean, even just with the vaccine and, and blood clots, the chances of, or, or the statistically, the occurrence of a blood clot, depending on the vaccine, is anywhere between one in a hundred thousand doses or one in a million doses. Yet, if we hear that our our, our neighbor uh, was, you know, was in bed for a couple of days, feeling like they had flu-like symptoms because of a shot, that might that plays, as you said, probably plays more into 
uh, any sort of hesitancy that we might have about the shot. You're right. And, and uh, I think it's worth emphasizing how incredibly rare these adverse events are. We have to put this in context, right? It is one in a hundred thousand and, uh, or even more, even rarer, right? Even rarer. These, these are fantastically rare events. But when we can recall, when we can remember an, uh, an incident, uh, that is going to overwhelm our knowledge of the statistics. Some people think we're biologically hardwired for something that's called the negativity bias. We, we remember the negative stuff, the scary stuff that works. You know, if you're you know worried about where the lions are hanging out or what kind of food you shouldn't be eating, uh, but now in modern times it's, it can backfire and it's backfiring right now, right? Where this negativity bias is playing a role. There's also something called the availability bias. If you can recall it quickly right? It's more likely to seem true. It's more likely to have an impact on your perception. And again, that's happening right now. So uh, lots of our own cognitive biases, the way that, that we see the world, these shortcuts uh, to our thinking can have an influence on, on how we interpret the risk-benefit ratio in the context of vaccines. Timothy, you bring up the availability bias and the negativity bias. How does one beat those biases in their own head? Does just calling it out, knowing that they exist, does, does that help? I think it does help. You know, just simply being aware, uh, simply being aware uh, of, of the existence of these cognitive biases, I think can help. Uh, the other thing that people can do is just recognize how chaotic the information environment is right now and, and taking a break, you know, taking a step back from, from the noise and, and trying to sort of curate your own information uh, world a little bit, I think that can be helpful. And when you're doing that curation, please make sure you are going to credible sources, you know, so, so important. Uh, so yeah, there are, I think there are things that people can do to try to, to fight cognitive biases. And by the way, this is something that we, impacts all of us. It impacts me, it impacts you, it impacts everybody. These cognitive biases, uh, it plays into uh, part of why we are bad at evaluating risk. But I mean, I, uh, I pulled up a list from the uh, National Safety Council, uh, just talking about, you know, chances of uh, odds of death for select causes in the United States in 2019. And I mean, uh, uh, being in a motor vehicle crash in the US, one in 107, uh, drowning one in 1,128, is, is just the virtue of these, these statistics, is that, is that also a factor in, in how bad we are at evaluating risk? Uh, I think, I think that, that referring to those kinds of examples, you know, putting risk in context can really help. You know, and another thing that can really help is is diagrams. You know, having having pictures that really try to to give context to the risk. But we do need to be careful because risks are also you know different. You know, the the uh, the risk uh, that is associated with something that you can't control, or the risk associated with a decision that you make that doesn't have personal benefit to you, and and all these kinds of things are also factors that people weigh. But but layering on uh, layered on top of all of that is just our inability to conceptualize these risks. The one that I always like to use, I think, is one of the most powerful, is uh, the the fact that parents don't let their kids walk to school anymore. And mm -hmm. the number one reason, if you believe the research, is is stranger danger, fear that their kid is going to get abducted or some kind of criminal act is going to happen to their kid. And the chance of that happening 
is one in 14 million, right? It's just not going to happen. But that fear, because of the availability bias, to see the headlines when it does happen, um, because of, of negativity bias, because of all the things we just talked about has caused most parents to drive their kids to school, despite all the profound benefits associated with it, you know, exercise, seeing friends, all those things. Um, so uh, yeah, you have clear, tangible benefits like a vaccine versus a very rare but scary adverse event. Uh, and that wins out in our decision-making. Mm -hmm. So as, uh, I mean, various provinces across the country are, are rolling out um, vaccines for larger and larger po uh, parts of the population, more into the general population segment. Um, so more people are getting their first shot. Uh, what More provinces across the country are rolling out vaccines for larger and larger parts of the population, more into the general population segment. So more people are getting their first shot. Looking ahead, what does the messaging need to be in order to ensure folks get their second shot? We all need to get vaccinated. I, you know, I think it's so, 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 so important to do that. Uh, I, I would like to see the messaging coming out. I, I do think being honest and being transparent about the risks and the science, so, so important, right? One of the quickest ways to lose trust is, is to somehow try to spin the science in a way that's favorable. So it is important to be honest. And I think that that's what NASA tried to do. Having said that, I think it's really important to emphasize how incredible these vaccines are. We're really, really lucky. I, I think we should reflect on that every once in a while. Every once in a while, we should remind ourselves, this is like a moon landing how exciting yeah. you know, the science behind these vaccines. So that's the first thing to do. Second thing I think we need to do is constantly remind people that you're getting vaccinated, not so much for yourself, but for your community. This is an altruistic act. You have to weigh that in your risk benefit analysis. The third thing that I think that we need to recognize is that all with all of the vaccines, yeah, the, the risks, uh, the harms are incredibly, you know, these really serious adverse events uh, very, very rare for all of them. Uh, and so uh, every day that you go without getting vaccinated is an opportunity for you to get COVID. Uh, the best vaccine is the vaccine that is, I still think this is true. I still think this is true, despite all the noise. The best vaccine is the vaccine that's recommended and available to you. Timothy, I heard about some research coming out of the States that talks about how the most effective communicator about vaccines was their family doctor. Had you seen that research and, and how does that jive with what you're aware of as far as medical communications and science communications go? I, there is a lot of truth to that. There's really interesting research that talks about, you know, who is influential? How can you change people's minds? Uh, family doctors, people trust their family doctors, right? They can relate to them and their family doctor knows them. So I think that is really important. Other thing that's really important is someone like you. You know, people trust experts, they trust scientists, but if they see someone like them, someone from their community uh, getting a vaccine, talking about a vaccine, that can also have a real impact. That's why I like the vaccines, you know, those selfies that I was taking. I know some people right. hated them. But, but anything that kind of normalizes the process, I think that can also help. You know, you need to get have voices within your community advocating for vaccines. Some famous Canadian faces are joining the fight against vaccine hesitancy. Actor Ryan Reynolds, hockey star Haley Wickenheiser, and Michael Buble and Chris Hadfield are just some of the celebrities who have banded together with Canadian doctors, encouraging all Canadians, but particularly racialized and ethnic communities, to get vaccinated against COVID-19. What do you think about the role of celebrities in terms of vaccine adoption or vaccine Vaccine take up. Um, you know, uh, celebrities can do a lot of harm, <laughs> but they can they can do good. You know, you see celebrities, you know, uh, 
saying absurd things. Uh, but I do think that this is one of those situations where celebrities can help. Again, they can normalize getting vaccines. Uh, they can give voice to the science. Uh, there was, for example, I think, believe, believe it was Julia Roberts and others have done this too, where they sort of give up their own you know, social media feeds to a scientist. So there's a lot of ways that celebrities can help here, uh, uh, normalizing the process, um, you know, giving a voice to the science. So I think that pop culture can, look, pop culture is not going away. Social media is not going away. We got to figure out a way we can leverage uh, those forces in order to get across the good stuff. If we're having conversations with friends, family members, and they bring up, oh, did you hear about uh, that lady in Alberta who died of a, a blood clot? Or did you hear about um, how a vaccine can affect, uh, you know, all sorts of systems in the body? What in just kind of everyday conversation, I would say around kitchen tables, but that's maybe not happening as much, but maybe uh, text chat, uh, group chats, that kind of thing. Um, what are some keys that people should keep in mind when they're talking about, you know, uh, potential downsides of vaccines when they're talking with friends? Uh, well, first of all, I think it's super important. You, uh, this is going to sound like a cliche, but it's, it's so true. It's so important to listen. Not everyone's a hardcore denier. People are just trying to figure out what's best for them, their family, their community. So listen, so and so important to listen. Uh, secondly, um, I, I think it's also important not to shame people. You know, sometimes it's hard not to get frustrated when you're, you hear someone is, who is an anti-vaxxer or just someone who's even slightly hesitant, you can get frustrated. So I, I, don't shame. Uh, third, I think it's really important to try to get a sense of what the specific concerns are and give them credible answers. Uh, point them in the direction of credible sources, something that's going to address their, their con concerns. Uh, um, also, I think you need to be patient. You know, people don't change their minds, right? And, you know, how often does someone go, you know, Tim, you're right. I guess I was wrong. That never happens, right? What you want to do is you want to leave them with something to think about. And the other interesting thing that uh, a colleague uh, raised not that long ago was, you know, do this in private. You know, even if you're in a, in amongst other family members, people might be less resistant or less open to talking because often this is part of their personal brand. This is who they are. Right. So, uh, you know, take them aside. I think that that's also uh, good advice. This is Why is produced by me, Dave McIver, and Adam Toy. It's a national radio show and a podcast. You can reach us by email at thisiswhy at globalnews.ca and on Twitter at thisiswhy. If you like what you hear and you want to hear some more, make sure you subscribe to This Is Why. You'll never miss an episode. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you're hearing, tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Wash your hands, wear a mask, get a shot if you can. We'll see you soon.